in the words of some guy from some cartoon, this is delicious! Welcome to the Divisive Albums Podcast, where your host has been a meme lord since approximately 2001, when he owned an All Your Base Are Belong To Us t-shirt. I am that host, MTI, a typical 35-year-old from the US whose pronouns are he, him. Here on the Divisive Albums Podcast, we discuss albums by established bands which divided their fanbase or were otherwise controversial. And on this episode, I've gotten a bit of help to introduce the band. Hey M. Bison, who are we discussing today, and are you excited about this particular episode? Excellent. The band Yes formed in the UK in 1968, and while none of its members ever had a romantic relationship with one another, they are one of the few bands that can rival our previous band, Fleetwood Mac, for both length of tenure and sheer amount of interpersonal tension and lineup changes. Musically, they are best known as a progressive rock band, and in fact they were one of the pioneers of that genre. Rush's Getty Lee has noted Yes bassist Chris Squire's influence on him in the past, and it was Lee and Alex Lifeson of Rush who inducted Yes into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017. Despite receiving that lofty honor, though, Yes have always been something of a critical punching bag. Pitchfork Media, in reviewing remasters of the band's catalog around 2004, mused about how strange it was that they tended to slam Yes despite actually liking a lot of bands Yes influenced. In particular, they named Radiohead as one example of this. And it is a little unfair to Yes, because you see, when Yes are on, they are amazing. Their early 70s run, starting with the Yes album, continuing with Fragile, and concluding with Close to the Edge, might be the greatest three-album run by any band ever. And no, I'm not just being contrarian nuclear music takes guy here, those three albums are really that awesome. But the critical disdain for Yes is not entirely without reason. Have you ever seen one of those old baseball cartoons where the batter swings and misses so hard that they drill or tornado themselves all the way into the ground? Yes, when they misfire is that in audio form. And you only need to look at the album's bookending that three-album run I mentioned earlier to find some examples. Before the Yes album, there was Time and a Word, a record where the band used an orchestra on a bunch of songs, which worked out about as well as you would expect, given that Yes at that point were a band ready to stop just imitating their influences and start doing their own thing, held back only by the minor detail that they weren't actually any good at that yet. And close to the Edge's follow-up, 1973's Tales from Topographic Oceans, is a four-song, 80-minute double album that has often been held up as the culmination of every progressive rock stereotype out there, especially the long, meandering songs that don't really go anywhere. Now, I actually like most of Tales from Topographic Oceans, but if you ask me to defend it against those negative prog rock stereotypes all bundled up into one album arguments, well, I can't do that. In fact, Tales from Topographic Oceans is an album that would make a good candidate for this podcast on its own. Yes, are one of those bands that have had a long enough career to have had multiple divisive albums. But that is not the Yes album we are discussing today. No, our podcast journey today takes us to the late 1970s, after the release of and tour for the Yes album Tormato. Tormato was rather tepidly received critically, as at least in taste-making circles, punk rock was in full swing by this time. And Yes, along with Led Zeppelin, were seen as some of the old rock dinosaurs punk rock was trying to eliminate. 
This ignores the fact that punk rock was never as commercially successful as revisionist history nowadays would have you believe, and that of course was one of the points of punk rock. But as proof of this, consider the three biggest selling albums of 1978 in the US. You had the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, the Grease soundtrack, and Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. Also consider the fact that Tormato was actually Yes's first US platinum certified album, even though nowadays it's not thought of as one of their better 1970s albums. Besides that three-album run I mentioned earlier, you will find people who are die-hard lovers of Tales from Topographic Oceans, and fans will consider 1977's Going for the One a high point as well. But after Tormato, the band were at an impasse. Singer John Anderson and keyboardist Rick Wakeman were enthusiastic to start work on another album, and they wrote a bunch of songs together. The rest of the band, at this point consisting of bassist Chris Squire, guitarist Steve Howe, and drummer Alan White, thought that those songs weren't heavy enough and started writing songs on their own. This discouraged Anderson and Wakeman to the point that they both left the band. It was now 1980, the dawn of a new decade, and yes, we're in bad shape. You see, they had a bunch of prior commitments for their upcoming album, but small issue, they did not have an upcoming album. Nor did they have a keyboardist, nor did they have a vocalist. What they did have was manager Brian Lane, who by chance happened to manage another band who were fans of Yes, and this band would come to the rescue for them. Those fans making up that band were Trevor Horn and Jeff Downs, collectively called the Buggles. Yes, the Buggles. Yeah, those Buggles. Video Killed the Radio Star, first video ever played on MTV, wrote a bunch of songs about the perils and dangers of technology while utilizing the most fancy pants, keyboards, synthesizers, and other recording equipment money could buy at the time. Yeah. Those guys. Now, I've read a couple differing accounts of just how desperate the remaining members of Yes were at this point. My personal favorite, which is probably an exaggeration, says that they were literally in hire whoever walks into the studio off the street this morning mode. But the basics of the story in any event are that Lane put the Buggles in touch with the remaining members of Yes, and Horn and Downs presented a song that they'd written that they thought would be a good fit for Yes to record. Squire agreed and invited the duo to rehearsals, at the same time remarking that Trevor Horn's voice sounded similar to John Anderson's. Despite this, the Buggles had no idea anything was wrong at this point. It wasn't until they got increasing pressure to record the song with the remaining members of Yes that they realized what had happened. And next thing they knew, the Buggles, who were fans of Yes, were now also members of Yes. Trevor Horn in particular had reservations about this, but he took the plunge anyway, figuring it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. And so, in 1980, this new lineup released Yes's 10th studio album, the focus of today's podcast, and the official album of the Games Done Quick submission and selection process, or at least it was until the GDQ committee wised up and stopped posting selection decisions as soon as they made them, drama. Could this new lineup survive and make a quality album with a new singer? Or was the loss of John Anderson one lineup change too many for Yes? We'll dive into the music in a moment, but I want to discuss the album's cover first. It's got a pretty cool cat on the bottom of it. Black, all sleek, I guess it's a panther. But more amusing to me, and it surprises me that this cover hasn't been used as a meme on the internet when stuff explodes in that certain way, is that it reads Yes, Drama, in big letters on the top. Come on, this would make an excellent alternative to chewing popcorn gifs. In any event, the album opens with a song called Machine Messiah. It's about 10 minutes long, showing that this new lineup hasn't lost Yes's propensity for writing long songs. And it starts off like this. 
so I'm digging this. To be clear, by no definition and in no era would Yes have ever been considered metal, but this is probably as close to it as they came. It's as heavy as they ever got, and if this is your first episode of the Divisive Albums podcast, I like heavy music, and so I like this. Truth be told, though, the music being solid, heavy or not, was kind of a given. At this point, Yes were on their second drummer, second guitarist, and depending on if you count Rick Wakeman and his two non-consecutive tours of duty in the band once or twice, either their fourth or fifth keyboardist since releasing their self-titled debut in 1969. Now I'm not advocating for any particular lineup over another, Yes are one of those bands like Fleetwood Mac or Kiss, a couple bands you probably thought you'd never hear compared to one another, uh, in that the band as a construct transcends any individual lineup. My point is just that Yes had survived lineup changes prior to drama, and spoiler alert, they would do so after drama as well. But there were two important constants amid all the lineup turmoil. The first was Chris Squire, Yes's ever-stabilizing presence, and I mean that in terms of both his instrument, the bass guitar, and the fact that he was Yes's one constant member through all the lineup changes from their founding in 1968 until his death in 2015 from cancer at age 67. The second constant was John Anderson, the vocalist whom many regarded and continue to regard as being irreplaceable. In other words, the real test of whether drama and this lineup could work was going to be when Trevor Horn first entered with his vocals. And that happens here, about a minute and a half into Machine Messiah. And you know what? He sounds pretty darn good. In fact, he sounds a lot like John Anderson. Now, one could dismiss this as just studio trickery, and that's true to a degree, but there's another component to this. You see, many iconic vocalists in rock music in particular get some, if you'll pardon the pun, unsung help from their fellow bandmates. A few examples for you. Freddie Mercury from Queen was, of course, an incomparable lead vocalist. Incredible range, awesome power, stage presence for days, he was the total package. I'd be crazy to suggest otherwise. But both in the studio and live, he did get a fair bit of help from guitarist Brian May and drummer Roger Taylor. You know that testicle-crushingly high note in Bohemian Rhapsody? That's actually Taylor hitting that note, not Mercury. Similarly, whether you prefer the hard rock bombast of the David Lee Roth era of Van Halen, or you gravitate toward the 80s keyboard smoothness of the Sammy Hagar days, Michael Anthony, the bassist, and his backing vocals are the secret sauce that really make them shine. You probably don't even remember the one album Van Halen did with Extreme's Gary Sharone behind the mic, which failed for a bunch of different reasons. But one of the reasons was not enough Michael Anthony backing vocals. And this isn't just me being goofy, this is a position that has been argued by none other than Gary Sharone himself, so I'm inclined to believe it. And so it is with Yes. Squire and Howe are an underrated integral part of the Yes vocal sound. If you go back and listen to that excerpt again, you will notice there are definitely multiple voices in there. Eventually, the song slows down a bit and takes on a softer motif. Machine, machine, messiah, the mindless. Search for a higher control 
well, that's pretty. As for what this song is about, well, I'm not 100% sure, which is par for the course for Yes lyrics, really. Yes tend to treat their vocals as another instrument, and they prioritize how words sound over whether they make sense in sequence, and despite the loss of John Anderson, this song is no different. Reading the lyrics and combining them with the title Machine Messiah, they seem to be a caution about excess technology, which I have to say, hashtag nailed it, yes? Especially given this was 1980. Then again, I don't know how much of this was the influence of the Buggles. All five members of Yes get co-writing credit on all six of this album's tracks. But from what I can track down, at least musically, the song is mostly the work of Alan White. In any event, after that hard-rocking opener, we move to one of the shortest songs in the entire Yes catalog, the minute and 30 second long White Car. And this is where the cracks kind of start to show. So you know that discussion we just had about iconic vocalists and getting help from their bandmates? Yeah, this is what happens when you take that away. Now, I should be clear, first off, props to Trevor Horn here. He's game for the attempt, and he is hitting all the notes. I can tell you from experience how hard that is on this song, and I'll post a link in the show notes as proof of this. But without Howe and Squire backing him up, you can really hear the contrast between Horn and John Anderson here. John Anderson has one of the most distinctive voices in rock music, or for that matter, in music, period. He sounds basically like he's permanently in falsetto, and yet his voice has a very unique timbre and quality to it. It's not a power per se, in the sense of other high-voiced rock singers like Getty Lee of Rush in the 70s, Rob Halford from Judas Priest, or heck, Freddie Mercury. Those guys are going for it. They're belting it out, and you can tell. John Anderson, in contrast, makes this high singing stuff sound easy, even effortless. Suffice to say that at least here, Trevor Horn does not. After White Car comes the funkier, let's say, Does It Really Happen? This was a song left over from the Tormato sessions that was reworked with this lineup. You can hear an early version called Everybody's Song as a bonus track on the Tormato remaster. Does It Really Happen sounds like this. <laughs> So I honestly consider just kind of glossing over this song, because it's one of my least favorite songs on this album. It was only after I listened to it again for this podcast that I realized my opinion on it hasn't really changed relative to the rest of drama, but there's a lot more interesting stuff going on here than I initially gave it credit for. For instance, there's the intro. After that little bass solo, it settles into a 4-4 groove, but that groove takes a really strange scenic route to get to 4-4, kind of like the turnaround in Led Zeppelin's Black Dog. Similarly, the chorus is primarily in 11, and that sounds like this. Oh, 
And then we have this. Yeah, that's a false ending. And the song goes on for about another minute or so after that, with a bass solo, no less. As much as Chris Squire was an integral part of the band and its sound, and as much as he influenced later pseudo-lead bassists like Geddy Lee and Metallica's Cliff Burton, Squire doesn't actually take a whole lot of proper bass solos on Yes albums. There's the obvious Chandeliria Promotoris from Fragile, his showcase on that album, and not a whole lot else I can think of offhand. Much like with Machine Messiah, Yes are showing that they're not shying away from their progressive rock roots in this new lineup. Take the song lengths, for instance. Now, I mentioned earlier that this album only has six tracks on it. And on that basis, it's short enough that we can and are, in a Divisive Albums podcast first, taking a track-by-track rundown of it. But time-wise, the album is roughly 37 minutes long, which sounds a bit short nowadays, but it was probably about average for 1980. As a point of comparison, Rush's Permanent Waves, which also has six songs on it and was also released in 1980, is about 35 and a half minutes long. Now what this means is that each track on drama is, on average, about six minutes long or a tiny bit over that. That's about right. Once Machine Messiah and White Car cancel one another out, the other four songs don't stray too far from the six-minute mark in either direction. So have you ever wondered, man... What would the Buggles have sounded like if they'd been a prog rock band? Well, I've got good news for you if you have. This next track will give you your answer. This song started life as a Buggles demo before the rest of Yes got a hold of it and stretched it out to about eight and a half minutes, making it drama's second longest song. It's called Into the Lens, and it sounds like this. Memories, how they fade so fast. Look back. There is no escape Tie it down Now you see too late Lovers They will never wait The song goes through several mood changes. It starts off slow, instruments come in and drop out at various times, the key changes a couple times throughout the song, and it gets rather ostentatious towards the end. Yeah, that's overblown, no doubt. A few more interesting things about this song. This was Drama's primary single, although the single version was literally half the length of the album version, via just starting three minutes in and then making a few other edits besides. Even more interesting, though, is that this song had a music video, and it was the full eight-and-a-half-minute version that got the music video. And with that, you're in luck. It's time for a second trivia tangent. So, music videos. Here in the U.S., we think of music videos as beginning with MTV in August of 1981. But this isn't true. After all, MTV needed something to play when it launched. 
According to Wikipedia, depending on how far you stretch the definition of music video, such things existed as far back as the 1920s with Vitaphone shorts, Vitaphone being an early movie sound system featuring bands and vocalists. If you've ever seen cartoon sing-along videos where you follow the bouncing ball to the words, those are parodies of Max Fleischer cartoons of the 1930s. And Max Fleischer, by the way, would go on to make landmark Superman cartoons about a decade later. In the 1960s, the Beatles and Rolling Stones, among others, created promotional clips for their songs that enabled them to appear in places such as the U.S., where they couldn't perform live or to show on programs such as Top of the Pops that, again, they couldn't appear in person for. This continued into the 1970s, where Australia got in on the act, with programs like Countdown and Sounds creating a demand for music videos. My point here is that the fact that the music video for Into the Lens predates MTV by about a year isn't surprising, and it's not even Yes's first music video. In 1970, they did a video for the Time and a Word track, No Opportunity Necessary, No Experience Needed, which without spoiling anything is worth watching. Back to 1980 and 1981 and MTV, you may have read that MTV caused something of a second British invasion among the people who had the channel in its early days. And the reason for that? Well, the UK had already been doing music videos for years by the time MTV rolled around, and MTV were a 24-hour music video network which didn't actually have 24 hours of music videos to play. So to fill out their catalog, they took all these videos from artists in the UK who may or may not have otherwise made it big in the US and gave them brief bits of celebrity. As for the video 4 Into the Lens, it's a pretty standard band plays the song clip, except that Trevor Horn's white guy dancing game is pretty strong during the lyrics And You May Find Time Will Blind You, and there's a out-of-nowhere shot of a duck on the water that starts about three minutes in and goes for 40 seconds or so, which I'm guessing is to emphasize the lyric There By The Waterside, but it's the only thing in the video that's not just the band performing the song, and it's odd is all. Drama's penultimate song is called Run Through the Light. It's probably my least favorite song on the album. It's not as heavy as Machine Messiah, or even Does It Really Happen? I ask my love to give me shelter And all she offered The most interesting thing about this song might be its single version, which has a completely different arrangement from the album version. This song was also developed from an earlier Yes song called Dancing Through the Light, which is included on the drama reissue, and I'll digress a bit here and point out that I'm not factoring the drama reissue bonus tracks into my thoughts on the album proper, but if you're like me and you're a sucker for any behind-the-scenes stuff, the drama reissue has a bunch of bonus tracks. Everything from single edits to rough studio run-throughs. Most intriguingly, it has some of the songs from the aborted 1979 sessions that led to Anderson and Wakeman quitting the band. The album closes out with Tempest Fugit, which is the song from this album a casual Yes fan is likely to have heard. It was never a single, but it did get a music video, which seems to have been shot at the same time as the End of the Lens video. It's also Drama's representative track on the U.S. version of the Ultimate Yes 35th Anniversary Collection. And a fine representative it is. Like 
especially like Squire's active bass line here, and the multi-layered vocals help kind of cover up the fact that Trevor Horn, through no real fault of his own, is not John Anderson. The title of the song translates to Time Flies, but though that phrase is used a couple times in the pre-chorus, it's not really the central point of the song. So that's drama. This is probably my favorite album I've covered on the podcast so far. I love four of the six songs, and even the two I'm less enthusiastic toward, Does It Really Happen and Run Through the Light, are more interesting than I gave them credit for. I'm not sure what it says that those two songs are also the ones that were holdovers from before Horn and Downs joined the band, but either way, here comes one of the more controversial things I've said to this point. I think if this lineup had been given a few more albums to gel together, they had an album on par with that three-album run from the 70s I mentioned earlier inside of them. Alas, they were not given a few more albums to gel. They were not even given one more album to gel. See, this is the Divisive Albums podcast, but truthfully this is the first album I've covered where divisive is an accurate descriptor. Or more technically, the tour for the album would technically be called divisive. But first, how did the album do on the charts? It did okay. It peaked at number 2 in the UK, which actually beat out Tormato's number 8 peak, and in the US it hit number 18, which isn't terrible, although it was a decline from the number 10 that Tormato reached. Surprisingly, critical reviews of the day were generally positive, but ultimately the album was the band's first since the Yes album nearly 10 years earlier to not receive RIAA certification in the US. Where Yes ran into trouble was the tour supporting drama. The US leg was actually very well received. Among other highlights, they sold out three straight nights at Madison Square Garden, and this brought their consecutive sellouts total of that venue to 16, which was a record at the time. The UK leg, though, was less warmly received. And this was for two reasons. The first was that this was Trevor Horn's first exposure to large-scale touring. Now, Horn gave an interview to the Red Bull Music Academy in 2011, where, among other things, he admitted that while he could sing high, he couldn't do so as well as John Anderson, nor sing as high, nor do so for as long. And that's when he was at his best, which he wouldn't have been by the time the UK leg of the tour rolled around. The other issue was that Yes were less than transparent about their latest lineup change, which further annoyed UK concertgoers. I'll heavily paraphrase Chris Squire here, and he said roughly that they could have informed everyone that things had changed, that people might want to get refunds, but instead they said, how about no, let's just uh, roll with this and see what happens. It didn't go how they wanted, and so in the wake of the declining album sales and the UK tour reception, Yes called it a day and broke up. But wait. Didn't I say they survived lineup changes after this? And didn't they have a huge hit song a couple years later? Well met, I'm glad you were paying attention, but we got a couple things to get through to get there. After Yes disbanded, Squire and White started a project with Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page called XYZ, which stood for X, Yes, and Zeppelin. This only got as far as writing a few songs, and they never released anything, because of a combination of an inability to find a vocalist, Zeppelin's Robert Plant was still mourning the death of his friend and drummer John Bonham at this point, and the fact that the two former band's management companies couldn't come together to agree who would manage the new band. After that, Squire and White formed another new band, Cinema, along with former Yes keyboardist Tony Kay and Trevor Rabin, a guitarist from South Africa. This band did manage to find a vocalist who was none other than, ba-ba-da-bum, John Anderson. At this point, someone said, hey, we have all these current and former Yes people, why don't we just call this new band Yes? 
This didn't please Trevor Rabin, who, among other things, did not sign up to be perceived as a replacement for Steve Howe, one of prog rock's most beloved guitarists. But he was overruled, and improbably the album that resulted, 1983's 90125, was Yes's biggest success to that time or since. Its main single, Owner of a Lonely Heart, was their biggest hit topping the Billboard Hot 100. It was an astonishing rise that really made Yes a household name. They had a few other hits after this, but the band's popularity eventually waned. However, the Yes name has been active ever since. Oh, has it ever been active? Remember way back near the top of this episode, where I said Yes could rival Fleetwood Mac for sheer interpersonal drama? Well, it got to the point that there are now two bands using the Yes moniker. The first is called simply Yes, and they're what I'll call the official Yes, for lack of a better term, in that this is the band Chris Squire was in from its founding in the late 60s until his death in 2015. That band currently consists of Howe, White, and, in an interesting twist, Downs, along with vocalist John Davison and bassist Billy Sherwood, whom Squire handpicked as his successor prior to his death. The second band is called Yes featuring ARW, the ARW in this case being Anderson, as in John, Rabin, as in Trevor, and Wakeman, as in Rick. They're rounded out by Lee Pomeroy on bass and Lou Molino III on drums. The basics behind the dueling yeses are that in the mid-2000s, John Anderson got sick, and Yes replaced him and didn't even bother to tell him directly. A side note here, Chris Squire was a brilliant bassist. He was also a callous businessman, to put it kindly, when it came to the affairs of Yes. Anyway, Anderson thought he had a legitimate claim to the Yes name, but elected not to push it, figuring that name and the legacy were in good hands as long as Squire was alive and actively using it. Squire's death, combined with Anderson's collaborating with Raven and Wakeman, which was at first simply called ARW, made him more aggressive about the issue, some behind-the-scenes negotiations happened, and next thing you know, boom, two Yeses. Before his 2011 return to the Yes fold, Downs co-founded the Prague supergroup Asia, which included Steve Howe and the late John Wetton of King Crimson, among others, and whose biggest hit was Heat of the Moment. Except for a brief period in 1989, Downs has served as the stabilizing Squire-esque force in Asia, which is still active today. If you're paying attention, you know that means that Downs has been pulling double duty for the past eight years. Now, in this Where Are They Now wrap-up, there's one last person I haven't mentioned, and that person arguably fared the best out of anyone associated with the band. And that is Mr. Trevor Horn, who found his voice, so to speak. Only it wasn't as a musician, although he did release a second Buggles album, Adventures in Modern Recording, which was basically a Trevor Horn solo album since Downs was off doing his thing in Asia by this time. That album had the song I Am a Camera on it, which was his take on Into the Lens, which is about half the length and has several sections in different keys. No, Horn would instead go on to become a legendary music producer. Put it this way, how many producers do you know of that have a greatest hits album? I can think of one. It's Trevor Horn. The album is called Produced by Trevor Horn, and it was released in 2004. Just some of the mega smash hits he's produced throughout the years are Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes, I forgot to mention he produced 90125, Kiss from a Rose by Seal, which won him a Grammy and is the one positive thing anyone remembers about Batman Forever, can't Fight the Moonlight by Leanne Rimes, which was the theme from Coyote Ugly. All the Things She Said by Tattoo. That's roughly a 20-year span of hits for the man, 
across a variety of genres going from pop to rock to R&B and everything else in between, really. All in all, in the wake of drama, things turned out okay for everyone in the band, even if it took a while for them to fully get their due. And in the end, I'm glad they made the album, and I wish the lineup would have done a few more albums after it. Thanks for listening to the Divisive Albums Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at EmptyEye.com, that's M-T-I-D-O-T-C-O-M. I also have a website at EmptyEye.com. You can also email the show at DivisiveAlbums at gmail.com. And lastly, I'm also on Patreon at Patreon.com slash EmptyEye.